I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 1 and Jeremiah 31, those two verses. Ephesians chapter 1, Jeremiah 31. Now, we started as a title last week, God's Eternal Love. And I can assure you that so much of our understanding of love in the church is based on how we are relating in the world. It's not as much the divine influence, and I mean this with all my heart, it's not so much of the divine influence of how we understand love, but we try to translate who God is and what God is and call it love as we understand it, how it works in this world. That's why we can get some bad theology out of that. And when the truth comes, we don't want to hear the truth from the way God gives it because we've already made it the way we want it to be. We have said, and many people will argue forever over this, that God loves everybody. And yet when you realize what happens to people that God loves, as he shows it over and over again, the effect of his love on those whom he loves is not seen in everybody. You know, I guess I could say you can believe any way you want to, but there's only one way that's right. And this is one of those most marvelous subjects that requires attention and time and effort to really gather in the meaning of it, the deeper meaning of the love of God. And in Ephesians 1, where we started last week, in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, to this end, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Then he goes on to say to add this dimension to it, which makes us think a little deeper. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We'll come back to that in a while. But it says here that before the world was, before the world was ever founded, God made a choice. He knew who was going to be in the world. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. And before we were ever here, God knew us. Before we were ever formed, he made that choice. Just like in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, God says, I knew you in the womb. And I called you from the womb. And when you came forth, let me ask you something. Could Jeremiah have been anything else? No, he had a will to make his own decisions with, but there is something greater than the human will. And that's God's will, which is totally in control of everything. And then he said in verse 5, having predestined us unto the adoption of children. He was going to do this. He has done it, and if it hasn't happened yet for you, it will. God has a way that he's going to do things. It's the way he wants to do things. And the very fact that he did this for you is an indication to you, once your eyes are open, this is how much God loved you. He didn't have to choose you. God is under no obligation to choose any sinner. 
to be his. But when he chose you, knowing what he was getting, it's only because he loved you. He had a plan for you, said according to the good purpose of his will. And remember this. In Jeremiah 31, the other verse I wanted you to see, it tells us how he drew us to him, how he brought us to him. And I'm glad of this, because he said in verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee how? Now, listen to me. If God says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, does it ever end? Does it ever stop? That's a special divine attachment to your life that you had nothing to do with. God did it all. Not because you were somebody, not because you were important, not because you had accomplished anything with your life or had a great, significant personality, but simply because he wanted to. Why? Well, we'll try to answer that too. Why? Well, because... As he said back in Ephesians 4, according to the good pleasure of his will, he said it three times. According to, three times he said that. It has nothing to do with us. It was all about him. Now, if I can get that, if I can gather all of that in and get that in my heart in perspective, I begin to see how little and insignificant I really am and how unimportant I really am in and of myself and how big and important God is. I am here because of what he did. Remember John chapter 6 and verse 44. He said, no man can come to the Father. Now, we're men and women, but classified on this earth as men. No man can come to the Father except the Father who sends the Son draws him. Nobody in this room is capable in and of yourself of coming to God. It's all up to God, isn't it? Somebody said, you sound like a Calvinist. Well, how about an Augustinian? Or how about just a Christian? He said, no man can come to the Son except the Father which sent the Son draws him. And the only reason I can find that he would draw you is what Jeremiah said here. He said, the Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn thee. Would you agree with me or would you think about this, that if God loves you, he's going to draw you to him? Okay? And if God is going to draw you to him, that's his eternal plan. Do you really think you can resist that? Oh, we like to think we can because... We're little gods. We like to think that we're somehow in control of everything. But God said, you know, with an everlasting love, I have drawn you. Out of the miry clay, remember that one in Psalm 40? Out of the miry clay, set your feet upon a rock. He established your going. He put a new song in your mouth. He, 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 everything that happens to us because of something he did. Why would he do it? Because he loves us, that's why. Because he wanted to. Because if you look at around this room at all the unlovely people you're looking at. 
There was nothing, the Bible teaches us this, there's nothing about us that was worthy of heaven or worthy of God. All we like sheep had gone astray. There was none righteous. On our best day, we were all unrighteous. Well, then why would God want to have anything to do with vile sinners, as they're called? Hard-headed, stiff-necked sinners? Why would he? Why indeed, but I'll tell you this, that when he does draw those kind of people to himself, he never leaves them alone. For a process, a divine process, a heavenly process is initiated in those people that for the rest of their life, they're being changed. If they're not changed, if they stay as they were, they'll be judged. But he changes them. God does this continuously wonderful work bringing us to himself. And you know why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. It'll make you get quiet. It'll make you put your hands in your lap and just sit still. I have no boast. I have no claim. There's nothing special about me. Why? Because he wanted to. Look at all the people that I grew up with that were more capable and better in everything than I am. Why would he take a C student and save him? Because <laughs> he wanted to, and then C was pretty good. Why would he do that? God left you here, has us here, brought us here for a purpose. In our total weaknesses, in our ineptness, in our rude past, God has a purpose for us. He's going to use you. He's going to transform you. He's going to redo you. And then he's going to use you. And this is what this Bible is all about, that God cares about us and God is for us. You see, go back to Ephesians just for a second. In Ephesians 1, again, he said, Verse 5, having predestinated us, and he ends that verse saying, according to the good pleasure of his will. Do you see that? All right, then why is he doing anything? Because it's what he wants to do. Would you agree? It's what he wants to do. And then down in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to what? The riches of his grace. Grace is free. You don't earn it. It's given. Grace is favor. The riches, the abundance, the magnificence of his favor. That's why we have that. Look at verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Why? According to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. For no other reason then that which was within himself has he done this. The disciples said, Lord, why do you speak in parables? You know, you speak plainly to us in private, but when you're talking to the masses, why do you speak in parables? You remember what he said in Matthew 13? He said, it is not given unto them to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to you it is given. And you stop and think how special it is then for God to show us anything. For God to bring us before himself and to open our eyes about anything heavenly. Anything. 
the little bit of light that we might have. And that's all we've got, a little light. That's a treasure. The world doesn't get that. They cannot get that. A natural man, because heavenly things are spiritually discerned, they can't get it. They can go to church. They can be members. They just don't get it. They're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It never affects their life. It never changes the way they live. Their choices are always the same. Their actions, reactions, moods, uh, character, person, it never changes. Because there's no light that comes in there that does that. But when God calls you, puts his special attachment on you, he makes it happen. You say, well, then why is it in a church, maybe a church like ours, that majors on teaching? Why is it that some people seem and some people don't seem? Because it's a wheat and tares thing. And don't be a tear. Because God said they will grow together. I want to make sure that I am serious about being saved. I'm not going to take it for granted because I nodded my head in a meeting, raised my hand, or went forward, or got baptized, that everything is fine. I've known too many people in my life that did all that. I've heard prayers so despondent and yet so heartbroken and tears, and, and they never darkened the door of a church. I've seen people walk and testify and pass out tracts and do all that, who one day quit and walked away. I don't take any of you for granted. I don't even take my own, you know. You got to make your calling and election sure because you have a marvelous gift when God gives you salvation. And there is a reason that God chose such people as us to be his because of the good purpose of his will. Now, last time I ended and I said this, he that is of God, John 8 he that is of God heareth God's words. Now, I would have to say that if you are and I am of God, then we will hear what he's saying. Because he goes on to say, when you don't hear, it's because you're not of God. Jesus said that, John 8, 47, red letters. John 8's a pretty tough chapter. So the question we'll begin with today is, while you're here, having been here many times before, are you hearing what the Lord is saying to you? Because when you do, he's loving you. Is that okay? Because that's what his love will do to you. It will cause you, cause, make. It'll cause you to respond to him. Nothing in this room this morning is an option. We don't have the option of listening or not listening, or maybe attending today or not attending, or going when I, if I can. We don't have the option. We are giving something that we call being compelled to go before the Lord, to whom we owe everything, to whom our hearts are, are grateful, and to accept life on his terms and be willing to whatever, what. Ever, he says, to subscribe to it and, and to embrace it and let it be our way of life. Nothing is an option. None of this book changes with ages, civilizations, 
Nothing changes. Somebody told me that when I was in India back in the last century, preaching in Madras, India, telling them to how they could rise above their level of life, and some of them were in the lowest caste, and they had been warped in their mind and in their thinking that the lowest caste can never evolve into a higher caste. You are stuck forever in that bottom level. And you know, you're not supposed to be political when you go to other countries. I didn't know any better. And I said, that's nonsense. That's Hindu nonsense. I didn't say that. That's Hindu nonsense. We were meeting in a Hindu temple. Incidentally, they had covered all the monkeys up with stuff around there so we didn't have to look at them. But I told him, I said, what God has said to his people when they were under a Roman rule, being harassed and hated by the whole world, these promises were made to them then. If they would work there, they'd work for you here. I don't care who you are, what part of what village you're from, whether you even have a pair of shoes. You trust God with all your heart and God will change everything in your life. You make a claim to his promises and he'll bring them to you. Otherwise, the gospel is only for America or England or some modern civilization. But the fact that God spoke one word one time to all his people says the same thing in every generation, any culture, in every country. This is the way walk ye in it. And you look at all the devastation today in the world and all the hatred and all the savagery and all the terrible criminal activity of man all over the world. And you think, why? Because they have all departed from God. They've all embraced something else. People are following a God today that loves killing. Our God tells us to turn the cheek, and this so-called God these other people have says shoot them and kill them or cut their heads off. What kind of religion is that? No wonder, no wonder they live in poverty and they're impoverished and foolish and ignorant. Why would God bless that? You know why he's changed it with you and maybe in America? This country did get started off, it seems, more or less on the right foot. It did put God first. They used to pray until they're trying to outlaw it. But we were acknowledging God in all things. Like Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. As you get away from that, you can see this trend of death and squalor and crime and unsolvable solutions. I think America has crossed the line. I do. The point of no return. But you see it happening because more and more as a nation, you start turning away from God, from God's ways, ruling God out of the business of man. We don't want God interfering in our public life. We don't want his name mentioned in our schools. We don't want a prayer said in our graduation. We don't want our children to be affected by some Christian God. People don't want to pray over a public meeting. And isn't it amazing in this hour how a few people can affect the whole government? How a few people can affect the whole political structure. Just a few people can hold hands and saying we are one and whatever. And the whole government just changes. Amen. But the reason it's different with us 
is because I believe as God has influenced us, made us rethink some things, you come and you start looking at it a little bit differently. He's saying things to us. He's not saying to everybody else. You're starting to look at things in a different way. You know why? It's not because you're just having a good day. It's because God's love is compelling you to listen. That's how he's loving you, because a lot of people don't. Turn to 1 John 4. See, love has its origins in God. And in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 9 and 10. 1 John 4 is a love chapter. The whole epistle, 1 John, talks about love probably more than any other book. Verse 9, in this was manifested or revealed to us the love of God. Because God sent his only son into the world. Why? That we might live through, not just because of, but through him. When God sent his son Jesus into the world for the salvation and the livelihood of his people, how does God describe that one word? It starts with an L. Love. This is how God manifested his love to us. For us, in years past, it was just a story. You know, the cross and the grave and the tomb and Easter. I mean, it's all a story. Without a revelation. Somewhat meaningless because it doesn't change your life. But now we're listening, and God says, in this way, God has manifested his love to you. He sent Jesus into this world on your behalf to die for you that you might have life through him. Now, verse 10, herein then is love. In this is love. Not that you loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. Could you have saved yourself? Is there anything we could have done to escape the sentence of death? Nothing. We were all doomed, weren't we? Why didn't he let us die? He could have. God didn't have to save us. Didn't have to. When Adam and Eve crossed the line, as far as God's concerned, you know, he could have started over. He could have wasted this world and got him another one. Why did he save us? It must have been because he loved us. Why did Jesus come? Because that's how God loves you. What happened to Jesus, as awful as it was, and as horrible as it is to think about what he went through, as John was describing Wednesday night, you know, people don't like to see Jesus in the days of his flesh. And how that as a man, he cried out on some of those hillsides at night. And that he knew what weariness and rejection was. We like to see him walking on water and raising the dead and turning water into wine. That's the kind of Jesus. I, but when you tell me that he became like I am, we have a high priest who was tempted in all points. Every way that I'm tempted, he was tempted. Oh, no, no, no. He was a man. 
just like you. And the weakness of his flesh, he was crucified, the Bible said. You can't crucify God. But he was at once the son of God. He was also at once the son of man. He was a God-man. The only human being with a dual nature. God was in Christ, wasn't he? And the human side, the only thing where the human will was and human volition was, he yielded that to God when he sent him to the cross. And what an awful time it was. But he sent him there for one reason, because God didn't want to leave you lost. He wanted you saved. And this is the way he would do it. If we could ever get that, if that could ever be embedded in our thinking, of the tremendous price that God paid for us to be saved, we would never turn away. I don't think we will anyway, because I believe maybe this is my great-great-great-grandfather's Baptist influence on me. I believe in the security of a believer. I do. Because I know that believing is not a choice I had to make in the first place. It was given to me to believe. I had to make a choice, of course, through life. But faith was offered to me, and it was compelling, and I took it, and he saved me. And I am being saved, and I will yet be saved. Amen. Now, back to God's love. In what way do we who have been loved and are being loved of God and are being affected by his love, we may not know that, but we are, how do we demonstrate back to God our love for him? What do we do? Well, you give. Well, that's part of it. I mean, giving to help the poor. We know that. First John three seventeen. Whoso hath this world's good. Remember that? And shutteth up his bowels of compassion from those that have need. If you don't care about them. The question the Bible asks is, how does the love of God dwell in you? God loves people through you. God cares about people through you. He causes you to think, Oh, that's his influence in your life so that you will take of your resources and help other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's called the royal law. The great truth of Scripture. It's all based on love, care, compassion, concern, help, giving, doing for others what others cannot do for themselves, just like God did for us when he saved us. And he rescues us and guides us. Of course, giving and helping is one of them. But I have majored my whole Christian life on the subject of faith. In all the years I've been saved, the most, to me, compelling message is the message of faith. Faith in God. You see, the Bible says, without faith, I cannot please God. So if I am going with all of my busyness and all of my religion, if I'm going to please God and, and have his approval of my life, it comes down to the word faith. That's how we do it. For without faith, Hebrews 11 says, you cannot please God. We walk by faith and not by sight. If you turn back from faith, it's a bad prognostication. If you turn away from faith in Hebrews 10, the last two verses, God said, my soul shall have no pleasure in you. 
It's the life that we live. We walk by faith. We live by faith. Everything Jesus was teaching, the fig tree, walking on the water, raising the dead, the woman with the issue of blood, the blind men, it's all about faith. That's what he brought up. He kept bringing up the subject to the word faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Moses endured as seeing him who is not seen. God holds me to a life the world thinks is foolish. Your friends will think you're foolish. When you live like something said in the Bible is a certain thing that's going to happen. We call that hope. Faith is a reality of what you believe is going to happen. And so when you start living like if God said it, God's going to do it, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It hasn't happened yet. doesn't look like it's going to happen, but you're expecting it to happen because faith always does that then people think you're a little bit weird. What kind of religion are you in? Well, the one the Bible speaks of, I hope. But the very basis for faith when it's right, turn to Galatians 5. The very basis for faith when it's right is your love for God. Did you know that your faith is a loving response to God? What he said in verse 6, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but what? But faith which worketh by love. That's what it says. But faith which worketh by love. Now, I have understood, as I hope you do now, that if my faith is right, if what I'm claiming, living, walking, saying, confessing, if it's right... It's not so much for personal gain as it is in glorifying the Lord. That God is pleased when we walk by faith, live by faith, use our faith. When the object and goal of our life is to live on his terms or to be faithful, faithful. So being faithful is a loving reaction to God. I want to please him. I want to serve you. God said, you'll have to go by faith. You'll have to believe that what I've said is true, even though you can't see any evidence of it. You'll have to act like that what I have said will happen, even though it doesn't look like it's going to happen. You'll have to live as though the things that God has promised are yours, even though you seem to be handicapped with no money, resources, or anything. And I've been here once. How could this ever happen? You've got to bypass all the opposition and say, no, it shall be even as it was told me, regardless of my circumstances. Because then you start not trying to figure out how you're going to get something, what's the best deal. Like you just start saying, God will supply all of my needs. God will take care of me. How do you know he would? Because he said he would. Yeah, but look at that. No, I don't know what about everybody else. If he said he'll do it, he'll do it. He's not a man that he should lie. That's the foundation of my faith. If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke something, he'll make it come to pass. Whether you think that's true or not, that's what he said. Now, not everybody's going to believe, of course. Everybody would like to believe, but it costs you something to believe. You've got to walk away from stuff that gets in the way. You've got to let go of things that are keeping 
his favor from you. And sometimes that's too much because we're so attached to this world. But when you have faith, take healing. I remember sort of when all of this first came to me. Lord, I've been sick and under a doctor's care all my life. I can't remember when I wasn't. I don't know how I ever made it through college. I don't. I really don't. On a basketball scholarship with half of a lung that was gone. I don't know how. And I had to finally take it out, half of one of my lungs. Got my scholarship back. And I don't understand a lot of things. But I know that God is faithful. I know that God has promised, once I begin to see it, he has promised healing. He's promised health. He's promised safety, preservation, the supply of armor. It is unlimited. And he even went so far as to say in Ephesians 1 that we read at the beginning in verse 3, he hath, hath, he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, where? In heavenly places from which God says he will open the windows. See, that's just too good. That can't be so. It is so. If God said that, and listen, if you're hearing and you heard that, your heart gets glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. He's given me joy. Why? Because he said something. What did he say? He said he's going to bless me. So I'm going to get blessed. Hallelujah. How do you know you will? I'm believing it. Amen. I'm believing it. Amen. God is not a man that he would lie. If he said he will do it, he'll do it. I'm glad that the way that I heard that causes me to respond joyfully back to the one who spoke that. Now I'm, hallelujah, instead of everybody going, I don't know about that. Oh, boy, I do know about that. In my limited understanding and abilities, I do know about that. And I know enough that in this little area of my head, I guess my little mental playground, he's made me glad. He's made me glad. He's filled my heart with joy. And then one day he brings it to pass. It is manifested. Everybody said, what you so wild about? Come outside and I'll show it to you. Everybody said, how'd you get that? I asked God for it. You did what? I asked God for it. Well, I asked God for stuff too. Well, I believed. You asked because Christians are just naturally prayers. They're not believers. They're not expectors. They're just prayers. We're supposed to, you know, pray. And if you pray enough, you'll finally get it. Or... God will say, I didn't want you to have it anyway. Whatever that means. But I believed it. He said he would do it. He did it. He turns things around. He heals. He fixes. He restores. He makes well. Why wouldn't I believe that now? Why wouldn't I major on that? I'm trying to get you ready for my next point. The thing that compels if it's doing this in anybody's life in this room or out there, if you're wanting to trust God, that is what God is giving you to do. Your response to that on his terms is a loving response. 
Otherwise, your faith is just some kind of a system of living. I've been through that, been through that, been through that, where we strain at gnats and swallow camels. I've been through that. The level of life you were expecting, that was how many houses are paid for, how many pairs of glass you've thrown away, how much insurance have you canceled, blah, 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 blah. Used to be that if you did this and did that and you weren't here and you weren't there and you didn't subscribe to this or subscribe to that, you're all right. Hateful, hard to get along with, mean-spirited, wouldn't pay your bills, pay your workers, just, oh, but I'm out of debt. I'm out of debt, praise the Lord. Well, you don't love the Lord just because of that. It might be a, it's a personal gain system. But I've come to see this. When it's love, when as 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, whoo, but have not love, but have not a loving response to God this way, I have nothing. Jesus told a bunch of men one time, we've cast out devils, we've prophesied, the very things he mentioned, we've done all that, and he said what? I never knew you. Amen. You're a bunch of gnats and camels. You've found a religious way to get ahead in this life, and you're using it. You're not loving the Lord. You're not devoting your life and your time and your attention and your life to God. You're using God to get something so you can boast about it. That's not love. That's not even Christianity. But it's allowed to happen. Just like in Deuteronomy 13, he says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes along and he has a vision or a dream and he tells you about it and it comes to pass, but then he preaches something different and misleads you with what he's saying, he said, you shall not follow or have anything to do with that dreamer of dreams because God is testing you whether or not you love him. Deuteronomy 13. That's why he allows all these erroneous things and these movements in our lives. All of them promise you to be more of you. All of them. All of them are more of you being you. Woo! God is testing you whether your affections really are on him or personal gain. He is. He tests us. You'll find more and more as you love him back the way he's loving you, you'll find yourself more and more realizing that, like Paul, you are, you are less than the least of all saints. The deeper he draws you to his throne, the more insignificant you really become. You had nothing to offer God. Everything you've ever had, he's had to give to you. Half the time you weren't thankful for it. Your testimony was about your faith instead of his loving kindness. You've got the glory. And yet, he's still with us, isn't he? 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. Faith is this. For this is the love of God. 
Now, this is what it says specifically, specifically about what is love. All right, this is what love is. One verse that says this, for this is the love of God that we do what? Keep his commandments. Does your Bible say that? That we keep his commandments. What does that mean? You know what that means? What are his commandments? Well, they're not Old Testament commandments like that. They are the issuance, how's that? Of his way of living for us in the New Testament. This is the way he wants us to live. Now, they're often called commandments. But it's like also the Lord is saying, this is a firm desire that I'm having or maybe a demand I'm making on your life. If you're mine, you'll do this. He did say one time, what does the Lord require of you, didn't he? You don't vote on it. Doesn't matter what board rules the church, you don't vote on that. It's just you have to subscribe to it. And he said in 1 John 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous or difficult or too hard. People say that a lot. Boy, that's a hard word. That's a hard word. And why isn't it hard to everybody? Why is it only hard to some people and almost all the time the same people? Could it be, folks, that there are things that you hear you don't want to hear? Could you hear things the right way and yet go, oh, mm, Do you think this person's life, having heard that, is going to respond lovingly to that? Because when you go, that's not love. That's the dread of me not being me as much as me would like to be me. Look at chapter 2. Whoso keepeth. That's like we keep his commandments. Well, here the word keepeth again. It says, verse 3. 1 John 2 and verse 3. And hereby do we know that we know him if what? Now, two things we know so far. If we keep his commandments, if we make them our way of life, in spite of the persecution and the trouble that comes, if we keep his commandments, it means, one, that we love him, and it means, secondly, that we know him. Would you agree? You have to agree to that because of what the Bible said. And verse 4, and he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't want to labor on that. I really don't. I've grown up in church. I've been a church boy my whole life. From the Catholic to the Protestant, I've been in that and been in a lot of them. But the Bible says this. If we say we know him, because most of us will say that, but we're not willing or we don't keep his commandments, what does the Bible say we are? We're liars. Now, liar is not a good thing to be. And the truth, he said, is not in us. And then in verse 5, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God 
perfected. And hereby we know that we are in him. Pretty clear, pretty simple, no big words. Everything is a little word except for perfected. It's pretty simple. But whoso keepeth his word, one translation says, whoever keeps his word in him truly, love for God is perfected. And by this, we may be sure that we are in him. Remember in John's gospel, he said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, abideth and abide and abideth and abide all through the New Testament. You know who it happens to? To those who love the Lord. Not everybody that says he abides in the Lord abides in the Lord. I mean, you've got to make this decision while you're sitting there this morning. Your heart's not lying to you right now. Your head could, but your heart won't. Hereby we know him if we keep his commandments. If we say we know him, we don't keep his commandments, we're a liar. But if we love him, we'll do what he said. And when we do what he said, our love is perfected. That is, it's brought to its intended goal to make us the kind of people that God has ordained we're going to be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. It's the power of love that brings his people to that. Because his love is such an influence on his people's lives that his people are then influenced and motivated to respond the same way. That's what it does. Turn to John 14. You're more familiar with this one. John 14 and verse 21. Talking about faith, this is why we talk about it. That's why I do. This is one of those verses that bring it to pass, that, that motivates you to talk about faith. John chapter 14 and verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them is the person who what? He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Isn't that good? How does it happen? It happens like this. Two things said here. One, hath. He that hath my commandment. Hath is first fact, the first part of this scenario. Who has his commandments? Well, we have a copy of them, don't we? That doesn't mean we understand it because it needs a divine clearance, revelation to understand it. Human man is not capable of understanding anything without divine help, if it's divine. I think all of us can say we have it. We have heard it. Paul was referring to how much we've heard. People have for years said it's a privilege to hear, and it is. And how much of a blessing it is to have our ears open, our minds alerted, and see things the way God is saying it? Wow. Okay, well, that doesn't mean, with all of this kind of spiritual refreshing, it doesn't mean you're going to do it. It means you've heard it and you can. All right? He that hath my commandment. What's the second part? Does your Bible say keep it? All right. He that hath God's commandments 
has got it. You're sitting there. You're dwelling with it. You're convicted about it. Now the choice, as God said, the choice is yours. Faith is always a choice. God puts his word out there like I put my thumb out there. My palm is what makes me responsible and accountable for my life. It's my will. It's a part of my soulish makeup. And God says, this is my word. I'm going to open your eyes and show it to you. Here it is. Look at what I've said. And you go, oh, God, I see that. All, right, all I want you to do, this is how simple it is. All I want you to do is make a choice. Choose God. Your choice won't make this true. What God said is true whether you believe it or not. But your choice brings you into conformity with it and brings God's response to you to perform it. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. That's what James said. So it's good to hear the word. It's good to get all these notes and have all this knowledge. It's good to have a head that's full of theology. It's good because now you know the truth. But that does not mean that you're living it. I suspect there are numerous theological wonders in our historical past who did not live what they taught. It was good. People applauded it. Boy, they wrote things and said things. Wow. But I don't care what you wrote or what you say you believe. If you don't live it, you didn't believe it. You acknowledged it. To live it means you believe it. You set everything else aside and this is your life. There's no other. That is the faith message. That's what faith is all about. I want to be well because it is the will of God that I be well. He said so. Therefore, I will use my faith and I will fight the devil and all kinds of things that want to defeat and dethrone me. And I will not be denied. I'll hold fast and I'll fight the good fight of faith and sling my arrows. Y'all still in here? Because it's what God wants. Do you suppose God in heaven would look at us fighting a good fight of faith sometimes in the midnight hour just really grinding down in the name of Jesus? Do you think God smiles at you? Those are the weapons he gave you, aren't they? He said he would test you, didn't he? You get to use those weapons yourself. You get to prove them, he said. Prove them. Well, I'm not doing so good down here financially. Wait a minute, he said... Didn't he say he would open the windows of heaven? Didn't he say, then you prove me? He said, you give back to God what is his, and God will show you what he'll do for you. Well, I can't afford to do that. Then the windows of heaven are locked with Loctite. You're going to take a torch to get you up there. Until you said it's all God's anyway. You let go of it. See, the faith life is us subscribing to God on God's terms. If he said it, that's what we do. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. And we're just counting on God to do what he said. 
I can't make him do what he said. He didn't give me a counter to tell me how long I have to hold on. He didn't say, if you grab a hold, it'll be done in 15 minutes or 15 days. He just said, hold on, believe. When you're walking through a crazy world, a savage and crazy world like you are today, walking by faith means you've got to trust God for your tomorrows. How do you know there's not trouble around the next corner? There could be trouble everywhere. Psalm 91 pops in your mind. No evil shall befall thee. No plague come near your dwelling. He'll give his angels charge over you. They'll keep you in all your ways. Smile comes on your face. Thank you, Jesus. And you're no longer taking thought. You're no longer concerned. Because being faithful to God means that if God said he'll do something, that's what you're counting on. Well, do you still have fear? Fear never leaves you alone. But wherever you walk, whether it's through the valley of the shadow or the valley of Aint Iris, the IRS, no matter where you have to walk, you're never alone. You're never alone. Isn't it wonderful to realize that God initiating his love to me has caused me to want to love him back? And, and enjoy everything he has. Plus, walk away from all of it if you have to. All of it. I don't want to be foolish and all of that. But if that's what he wants and that's the way it works, that's exactly what we'll do. And in closing, verse 23 of John 14. Remember, as we get to John 23, the two things he said that I mentioned in John 14, 21. He that hath. Remember that? He that hath. And he that keepeth. Listen to me. The word keepeth is translated observe in Matthew 28. Remember in verse 20 it says, go into all the world, teaching them to observe. That's what keepeth means. Not just go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make sure they all hear it. Make sure they all hear it. Make sure everybody hears it. Hearing is good. That's part of the equation. But you've got to keep it. Somebody's got to be there and lean on these people. Because man naturally recalls against God until God begins to do his part. And then somebody has to make a disciple out of them. Anyway, verse 23, following John 12, 14, 21, 23 says, If a man love me... He will keep my words. Now, if we said no more this morning, put a period right there and walked away, we've heard enough. Because everybody in this room can evaluate themselves pretty easy, very easy with those verses. Look how simple the words are. If a man love me, he will keep my words. The longest word was the word words. It's five letters. If a man love me, he'll keep my word. If anybody in this room loves God, loves the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll do what he said. You'll be faithful. He goes on to say, and this is what will happen from God's side. And my father will love him. Now, if I asked you the other side of the coin, some of you get a little bit squirrely. What if a man hears a word but doesn't want to keep it? Does the father love him? Does God keep dealing with him and keep? Well, you don't want to say it. I'll say it for you. 
He says, if a man loves me, he'll keep my words and the father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him if he keeps my word. Remember what he said at the end of verse 21, I will manifest myself to him. And the father and I will both love him. Love who? Who? The one who keeps his word. Now, let me close with this. Is there any reason why anybody in this room or watching, is there any reason you can give that you are unable to keep or do what God said or to be faithful? What holds you back? It, name something that would limit you from doing that. Well, you might think of something. If you can think of anything, ask yourself this question. Am I willing to let that keep me from heaven? And then you deal with yourself. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a great, great day for conviction. It's a little cooler. A great day for conviction. All of us, I get convicted just like you do. Let me say this. Nobody has ever loved us like God has. Nobody has ever loved us like Jesus did. And let us remember that how Jesus loved us was in paying a price for our sins so that we, through his death, might come to God. And that's what the communion table is about this morning. And let's reverently give thought to that as we approach it. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would bless our understanding of this enormous and wonderful subject. Especially in the words of Scripture that when you said, in this was manifested your love to us in that you sent your Son to die for us and to be the propitiation for our sins. What love, what a life, what a horrible death, but what a wonderful resurrection. God, let your grace abound to our hearts and thoughts as we partake of the communion table, the bread and the cup this morning, in Jesus' name. Here is love, last as the ocean, loving kindness from above. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten Throughout heaven's eternal days On the mount of crucifixion Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Float a vast and gracious tide grace and love like mighty rivers 
poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love let me all thy love accepting love thee ever all my days let me seek thy kingdom only and my life be to thy praise thou alone shall be my glory nothing in the world i see thou hast cleansed and sanctified me thou thyself has set me free in thy truth thou dost direct me by thy spirit through thy word and thy grace my need is meeting as i trust in thee my lord of thy fullness thou art pouring thy great love and power on me without measure full and boundless drawing out my heart to thee here is love vast as the ocean loving kindness as the flood when the prince life our ransom shed for us his precious blood who his love will not remember who can cease to sing his praise he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal